Good afternoon. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I direct the South Asia Center here. It's a special privilege for me to welcome my former boss, Shuja Nawaz, and the founding director of our center to, um, to launch a special report that he wrote for the U.S. Institute of Peace. I'm also delighted to welcome other colleagues, welcome back other colleagues, uh, Moid Youssef and Tom Lynch. Uh, Moeed is from the USIP and Tom Lynch is uh, from the National Defense University. Um, so, so I'm not going to, I'm going to right away hand over the floor to Shuja where he's going to talk about his report and this will be followed by Moeed uh, Yusuf whom, who is going to delve a little bit deeper on the National Action Plan and finally end it up with Tom Lynch who will put this into context and discuss the regional um, um, to discuss the regional ramifications and also the implications for U.S. policy, and then we will dive, it, dive into a question and answer session. Shuja. Thank you, Bharat. It's always good to be back. Um, and then I have to drive in, and I drive back, and, and I know why uh, I stepped aside. <laughs> <laughs> because trusting yourself to Metro is, is a, a fraught endeavor. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, the, the great part of coming back is that there's always a good conversation, uh, you, even if you don't say anything of great import. Uh, I'm very grateful, first of all, to, uh, to Moeed Yusuf and his team at the USIP because um, they agreed to uh, my doing this particular report, um, which uh, we mutually agreed would take uh, a period of nine months to look at the National Action Plan and the fight against militancy and terrorism in Pakistan. And I wanted to do that because uh, doing a snapshot is really not worth it and not very useful uh, for anyone here or anywhere in the country. And um, the, the National Action Plan was an evolving um, entity. Um, it started off uh, with some uh, list of things uh, a long list of things, uh, and then uh, it became clear over time uh, how it was going to proceed or not proceed. So uh, I felt it important to go there and uh, speak with uh, people, uh, not just in the, uh, on the civil side, but also on the military, the police, civil society, retired senior military and uh, uh, civil servants and police officers also. Uh, and then in civil society, I also spoke with a lot of commentators who cover Pakistani politics. And so that was kind of the background. And uh, access uh, means a lot. Uh, and initially, there was a fair amount of good access. Later on, I discovered that um, it was much harder to talk to people because um, people were becoming much more wary. And so many of my conversations uh, took place on a background basis. Uh, I just wanted to, to, to mention that. Um, the heightened interest in the, the National Action Plan uh, was really um, as a result of the, uh, the military action that took place under the, the operation known as Zarb-e-Azb. Uh, this was, uh, like most things military in Pakistan, uh, a long-planned uh, and a well-planned uh, effort. Uh, in this case, it involved not just the Pakistan Army, but also the Pakistan Air Force. Uh, over the years, they had been preparing for it 
updating their information, their target sets, etc. Uh, and so uh, it, it was probably uh, the quickest uh, and uh, most successful of all the elements of the National Action Plan in the sense that it, it managed to clear uh, much of FATA, uh, almost all of it, except for a very small pocket that was cleared more recently, uh, of uh, the disruptive elements, the militants, the anti-state elements, the foreign fighters. Um, but uh, there was an issue as to whether this was going to be the, the end of terrorism in the country. Uh, and that became evident uh, fairly quickly because uh, with Fatah cleared, uh, a lot of the people did manage to escape across the border into Afghanistan. And so Pakistan was now then facing uh, a fairly heightened risk of uh, reverse sanctuary uh, of uh, the members of the Tariqa Taliban, Pakistan using Afghanistan's territory in order to continue uh, uh, trying to infiltrate the country and to, to uh, uh, do damage. Uh, there were much fewer incidents of that sort after Zarbayaz was launched. Um, the question then was uh, what to do next. And so the civil and military authorities set up something called the Apex Committees. Uh, this was something that had been tried in the uh, uh, period of President Musharraf. Uh, it was tried in, uh, in uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, or, or at that time it was still the Northwest Frontier Province. <coughs> Uh, where the, the corps commander and the governor and other senior civil officials would meet regularly uh, in, under the Apex Committee and then uh, decide jointly on what to do uh, regarding the security situation in the province. So that model was, was presented as a fresh idea and uh, replicated uh, in each of the provincial capitals. Uh, in order to give it greater weightage, um, in the opening meetings, uh, the Army Chief, the Director General, Inter-Services Intelligence, and the local uh, Corps Commander, or in the case of Punjab, Corps Commanders, participated. Um, uh, the preparation for this uh, varied considerably. And um, Moeed is going to talk a little more about the, the National Action Plan and you know, how far it's succeeded. But uh, uh, let me just give you what I could discern over this nine-month period. Uh, it was what I would best describe using a very English term, a British term, as a higgledy-piggledy approach. Uh, each province basically wanted to avoid certain issues and concentrate on others uh, because each province had a separate political leadership. Uh, the only constant in all of this was that the military had the same team. Uh, I mean, they were on the same page internally. But when I would speak to people in the military, they would, out of sheer politeness, and I could see this, uh, often refer to the fact that they were on the same page as the civilians. When I spoke to the politicians, uh, out of politeness or fear or concern of annoying the military, they would say, we're on the same page as the military. And after nine months, I came to the conclusion that if they are on the same page, it is in different books because quite clearly uh, their focus was quite different and the, uh, the alignment was off as a result. Uh, and the reason why the National Action Plan uh, is still sputtering rather than picking up steam is largely because the civilian side was 
generally unprepared uh, in almost all the provincial capitals. Uh, the, the biggest single uh, opportunity for something really decisive lay in the Punjab. Uh, but in the Punjab, uh, they focused more on uh, a small bandit group and even boshed that up uh, till the military got involved and, and managed to clear out this, this bandit group. Um, but uh, none of the, uh, the well-known militant groups, none of the, the, the major groups um, that in the past have been associated with state sponsorship uh, were targeted and then still have not been targeted. Uh, the only group that uh, continued to be uh, receiving the, the force of the, uh, the, the state's power was the, the Lashkar e Jhangvi, uh, which has, uh, has tried to, to hit back uh, recently also. Uh, but against uh, uh, all of this activity, um, I, I want to mention two things. Um, one is that Karachi uh, has become, in many ways, a kind of microcosm of Pakistan because uh, it has all the different sectarian groups, it has all the different language groups, it has all the political parties active there. And it, it is a city-state of 25 million. And uh, being able to manage Karachi and to govern it uh, and to be able to control militancy and terrorism in Karachi is going to be the test uh, for both the civil and the military. Uh, the Rangers have come in and done a great job in in giving the people of Karachi an opportunity to move around safely. I saw that uh, tremendously change in the nine-month period that I was there. Um, just to give you one anecdotal piece of information, I went to uh, a play at the, the Arts Council, and it was the 88th showing of a play called Siachen, which in itself is quite a, uh, an interesting play, but it was standing room only on the 88th showing of that play. Uh, and it was the, uh, the middle class and the lower middle class, uh, and it was men and women and children who were attending the play. This was not something that was possible uh, a couple of years ago. It, there were certain areas, and particularly certain times of the evening when people uh, had trouble going out. So that has changed dramatically. Um, what also struck me was that there's a growing recognition, particularly among the, the rangers, that uh, in order for this to succeed and be sustained over the long run, there needs to be a much stronger focus on building up the policing capacity of the civil, uh, which means more training, more equipment, uh, and better emoluments and uh, remuneration for the police. Um, from the police side, I heard that uh, they're the good police and the bad police. First of all, there's not enough, so in Karachi, uh, roughly, uh, I would say, 20% of the police force is, is spending time on VIP duties. Um, the remainder, half of them, were uh, termed uh, as uh, unreliable. And this is from a very senior police officer. So the remaining half are used for operations. And even those are not told the objectives when they, they move out they're not told uh, what the objective is till they actually hit the road uh, because they're worried that they might leak out the information uh, and, and destroy the objective, the purpose of the objective. Uh, so there are a lot of these uh, internal 
systemic issues that uh, people are aware of. And, uh, and for me, that's a good sign, because once they're aware of them, perhaps they will be able to do something about them over time. It's not going to be a short-term battle. It will be a long-term battle. Um, and uh, it will require a much greater uh, ability to organize the political forces. It will require a much greater commitment uh, for them to work closely with the military and vice versa. So that when the military plans its operations, it brings the civilians on board in, in the planning stage rather than at the end of the, 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 the operation when they, they tell the civilians, you can take over now, and the civilians are unprepared. So there needs to be much more um, uh, melding of uh, ideas at the early stage of operations. Um, the, the overall uh, impression that I got from looking at, uh, at the uh, National Action Plan and the work of the Apex Committees was that there is not a clear vision and a uniform vision across the provinces, and there is no clear system of review. Now, more recently, uh, there has been a kind of stutter step and getting in line between the civil and the military, uh, asking the National Security Advisor to take the lead on a review of the National Action Plan is a good idea, but I wonder if he has the resources. Um, and on that uh, uh, score, the civilian side has its own national counterterrorism authority, uh, which has been treated like a stepchild by the previous government and even by this government. I mean, they made promises of giving it resources, and then the resources were not provided. Um, so they're operating, but they're operating on a shoestring. The good news is that they are now working with the National Security Advisor. And uh, if that communication takes place, then I think the, with a, a dynamic leadership at the National Counterterrorism Authority, uh, a stronger review process, which I hope will be followed by stronger actions once the recommendations come from the NSA, uh, we may actually start seeing uh, some light at the end of this tunnel. But it's going to be a long tunnel. Uh, and so I would end by simply saying that I, I'm cautiously optimistic about this venture. Uh, the, the danger is that the neighborhood is becoming more and more dangerous, uh, and Pakistan cannot move out of that neighborhood, uh, and so it will suffer the consequences of being surrounded by India on the one hand and Afghanistan on the other. Uh, uh, and the other danger, of course, is that politics doesn't stop. Uh, and so we have elections coming up in Pakistan uh, in uh, another couple of years. And so from next year on, um, the parties are going to be in campaign mode. And so it's going to get even tougher to take uh, the, the really tough decisions that need to be taken in order to change the landscape that fosters uh, terrorism and militancy in the country, to change the educational system, change the textbooks, uh, and all that. So let me just stop here. Uh, I purposely avoided going into a repetition of everything that is in the report because you all will be able to read it, but I'm starting to give you my overview of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Bharat, for the invitation, and um, thank you for doing the report. So I, I'm, I won't be speaking to the report, but what I wanted to do in, in sort of our conversations, what we decided, I'd try and open up the National Action Plan a little bit. 
and, and sort of discuss this in the counterterrorism perspective. I mean, you know, we all know for the US and for the world, it's crucial um, that Pakistan gets this right. Um, because of the violence, but also because this has become the ultimate marker of all of Pakistan's strategies, planning, and efforts on uh, counterterrorism. So any, anybody who's going back to look at how um, Pakistan is doing is referencing this document, including the government, the military, and uh, the people who are watching this. And so I, I think it's important just to take a step back and analyze the plan for what it is. Uh, and then determine what of this is realistic versus not and where that leaves um, Pakistan and, and the region and, and US interests. So the first thing I'll say is what NAP has achieved is that it has created this marker. Anybody you talk to in Pakistan or here, quite frankly, is looking at the NAP and the 20 points to see whether this is comprehensive, whether this comes together, whether this is delivering, can it deliver? So, in a way, that in itself is a big positive because prior to this, there were multiple documents, ideas, views, but nobody really knew where to go to see whether Pakistan is ever going to have a strategy or not. Um, so that is one positive. The second point, though, that I would make is that the problem with NAP is that it's called the Action Action, National Action Plan, but it is actually not a plan. Um, it's a compilation of 20 bullet points. That's what it was. It was the circumstances that drove it. Uh, it was, you know, uh, time was short. They wanted to come out with something. So here is a list of 20 things to do. But if you sort of put your management hat on, um, what you find is that a management executive would sort of open this up and tell you that the plan, the 20 points comprise of what I would call vision and mission statements, what I would call goals, what I would call objectives and activities, and what I would call work plans in, in some cases. But it's not clear how all of them come together. So the, the first concern I have is that NAP has created a conversation, which is good, but expectations which have set it up to fail. Um, and I'll give you some examples of certain things uh, that actually cannot be done, but are still very much part of NAP. And the problem then is that every time a major terrorist attack happens, Everybody looks at this document and says, NAP is failing, thus the government is not doing what they need to do. It weakens the, the civilian space further. And the argument is, well, Pakistan is not doing counterterrorism internally, I'm saying, uh, in terms of the civil society and the media and everything else. And I think that's a problem because, quite frankly, if we are looking at terrorism attack by terrorism attack to judge NAP, uh, the state is in trouble because they won't be able to ever meet those expectations. So let me sort of open this up for you and look at the 20 points very quickly uh, and say where they fall. So some statements that are really vision statements or mission statements, if you will. Militant outfits and armed gangs will not be allowed to operate in the country. Great. That's a vision statement. What do you do with it in terms of measuring whether this is delivering or not? That's a long-term uh, ultimate goal, if you will. Um, Revamping and reforming the criminal justice system. The best of countries would take decades to get there. So clearly, there is not a timeline that matches with Pakistan getting rid of active violence over the next five, seven years when it comes to that. Dealing firmly with sectarian terrorists. OK, dealing firmly, but then what, what below it? Then there are, there are points in these 20 that I would say are actual goals, which are not as pie in the sky, but, but are goals that need to be opened up and work plans attached to them. Choking financing for terrorists and terrorist organizations. Sure, you can do that if you have a work plan below that. Uh, taking effective steps against religious persecution. 
Sure, everybody would agree to that, but then again, how do you open that up? Zero tolerance for militancy in the Punjab, etc., etc. So there are that that's the second layer where there are things that make sense, but you need activity, work plans, strategies attached to them to know whether the state is actually moving ahead uh, in the way that, that it should and people expect. Um, then there are certain very immediate things, very clear activity, setting up of military courts, which was done immediately and have been functioning. Um, implementation of the death sentences, uh, removal of the moratorium on, on death penalty. That has happened, um, it, was, it was quick. Um, establishing a counterterrorism force. So at least you know that there is a force that needs to be created and, and they're sort of working on that supposedly. Then there are parts in, of NAP which have nothing to do with the National Action Plan and shouldn't be here. For instance, um, giving space to the Balochistan government for political reform. Sure, I mean, the state of Pakistan needs to do that. That has nothing to do with, with this particular plan as far as I'm concerned in, in the way in that it was set up. Administrative development reforms for FATA. Again, it's a govern, govern, governance priority, but I don't think it fits in, in the 20 here. Um, Afghan refugees. It's an issue Pakistani state uh, is free to deal with, but again, saying that that is part of the counterterrorism strategy, quite frankly, doesn't make, make sense to me. Um, and then finally, there are parts which are missing. And the, uh, you've sort of talked about the civil military uh, aspect and the military operations. You started off with Zarbe Azar, which is ra rational and logical, right? You want to go there and say, this is what has happened. Well, the most striking part of these 20 points is that military operations are not part of the 20 points. The only part about military operation is Karachi, which is very sort of specific because it's led by paramilitary and the civilians, etc. But the biggest part of Pakistan's counterterrorism approach, which is the military part, is not part of the strategy. And the reason for that goes back to the civil military issue. They wanted to present this as a civilian document. They did. But at the end of the day, if you're looking at the country called Pakistan and thinking about a counterterrorism strategy, how can you not have that as part of this 20? So the, the point I want to make is that I think the state to create the right kind of expectations for its own people and the world first needs to prune this list and make it very clear on what of these 20 are actually things that they need to be measured against. What are real benchmarks and what are things that are just statements that need to be there, you know, remove militancy from the country, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine. And then certain ones which may or may not be implemented but don't really belong here. The ones that I've just mentioned, Afghan refugees, reforms of governance, et cetera, et cetera. Once you do that, then you have a list of, according to me, about seven or eight that you can actually open up, have actual strategies attached to them, make them public, not the details of the strategies, but what are your benchmarks? against which people and the world should measure you. And then I think you can have a real conversation um, about what is being achieved and what is not being achieved. If you look at the government of Pakistan's own um, sort of list of activities and what they've achieved so far, the raw numbers are fairly impressive. You know, they've sort of had 54,000 odd combing operations, they say 102 madrasas sealed, 33,000 combing operations in Punjab, um, 1,500 books that had hate material taken away, 7,000 cases resolved, uh, SIM verifications, which is the cellular telephone sort of cards and whatever. All of that is great. But the problem is, what are you measuring that against? Is 33,000 enough? Is 60,000 what it should be? Should it even be part of it or not? And that you can't decipher unless you take the 708 points, open it up, and create a real strategy around it. So that's, that's sort of one major issue, I think, with the NAP. And I, I would agree 
that this is politically challenging because you don't want to put yourself out there and say, I'm going to fail if I don't achieve this. At the same time, the, the, I think they're setting themselves up for failure because every time a major terrorist attack happens and people point to NAP failing, it's, it's an indictment of the government's effort. So, so I think there is a better way to do that. Let me um, quickly pivot and, and sort of close by saying that the million dollar question here is, the way the National Action Plan is set up and the Pakistani state is going after it, there are clearly certain things that have changed. And the biggest one of those is that mega violence is down by about 40%. The other thing that has changed, and I've seen it myself, and I think you've alluded to this, is psychologically the society doesn't reflect an existential crisis as it did about five to six years ago. So that's a clear change. The conversations have changed. People are not talking about leaving the country, whether to send kids to school or not. I think there's a, there's a much more sort of positive vibe there. So that's working. The issue is whether the state has plateaued or not in its efforts. So has it achieved what it could under the current paradigm or is there more, more space to, to go further? And that's my worry. And I would argue that things are now getting to the point where the system has delivered on the maximum if you are going to approach this as 20 points ad hoc that you're going to try and do at the same time. And unless you bring more coherence to this, I think the military operations, especially things like Karachi, are going to plateau because you can't go beyond a point with, with the current civil military divide on the issue. Um, things like the civil, um, the criminal justice process, the whole idea of setting up military courts was that in those two years you start the reforms from the criminal justice process. I haven't seen a single thing that has happened there. So are the courts going to be extended? Are they going to be removed? And then you go back to the same old problem. I think the system as it stands is reaching capacity. And to make things keep going, I would argue you have to do what I just said. Prune the list, go to the seven and eight, create strategies, realistic strategies, manage expectations based on that, and then deliver going forward. And the final point I'll make is the million dollar question. I won't go too much into that because I know Tom is going to talk about that, which is can Pakistan do more in the regional environment? as it stands. So Pakistan's approach to this entire counterterrorism is a quarantine approach. Essentially take certain groups, deal with them, leave certain others without going after them, arguing that this is a sequential approach. The world's view is it's not a sequential approach. You're still playing footsie with it. Whichever one is true, it is a quarantine approach. And so the view from Pakistan's state perspective, I guess, would be you have to quarantine, there's too big a challenge, you'll do one, then go to the next, and then go to the next. The million dollar question is whether that is doable or not. Because I think the world, the consensus around the world is you've got to do all of this together, it's like cancer. You can't take one part and not touch the other part. And I think the jury is out and we will see and you'll speak more to this. Um, but if you combine the regional environment and if you combine what I've said internally, the problem on how the national action plan is set up, I think you are plateauing as the Pakistani state in terms of what you could deliver through this mechanism. They have delivered a lot, so I, I don't want to under, undermine that part. I mean, Pakistan in some ways is bucking the trend uh, of violence-prone countries. I mean, look at the Middle East and then, then compare the trajectory. But are you going to get to sustainable peace? And to me, the $2 million questions are, can you prune the national action plan and make it more realistic? And can you get the regional environment to somehow complement what is happening internally? And there, I'm, I'm very pessimistic, but you'll say more. <laughs> Tom? Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Barack. And thanks uh, to 
um, my friends here at the Atlanta Council for having me to this panel. And uh, thanks and congratulations to um, Shuja on a, on a fine monograph, which I really enjoyed reading, and to USIP for, for sponsoring and publishing it. Uh, I, I truly found it, having uh, been looking in this area, in this space, for you know, the better part of uh, uh, seven, eight years, coming up on a decade, uh, that uh, the, the granularity and the detail, Shuja, that you were able to get to in, in, in understanding what's been going on, not just with Zarbiaz, but also with the components uh, domestically, was, was very helpful. And so I, I, I congratulate you on, on work well done. Thank you, sir. Uh, what I wanted to talk to today, and this has already been set up here, is kind of you know, maybe paint a little bit of a, of a broader brush and, and, and talk to the, the wider region. Because as uh, Moeed has alluded to, uh, and, and, and Shuja hinted at in his writings, but obviously that wasn't the focus of his writings, is that this whole landscape of terrorism and militancy fits in a wider framework. And it fits in the wider framework of several countries that I thought I'd just address briefly, and then we can save some comments uh, for the Q&A period uh, in the region. And then I'll, I'll also make uh, a couple, maybe three comments about uh, the evolution of the, uh, the US and Pakistan military relationship, something that I kind of try to track closely from my perch over at uh, National Defense University. University, uh, which I think fits into this, this context of the, of, the, of the wider framework of the region. So first, uh, in terms of the region itself and some of the, some of the trends that have, have also been emerging during the same period of time, the last two, two plus years uh, with Zarbiaz going on uh, and also with the, the uh, items that, that Shuja talked about here with the action groups and others. Let me just talk about with India. Afghanistan and then China in that order, kind of the three things about the region. First, as many of you will know, and as I try to track fairly closely, um, the last couple of years of Pakistan-India relations have been uh, amongst the most fraught and in some ways dangerous we've seen, uh, certainly since 2007 and some would argue since even prior to that, back to 2001, 2002. And in that process, there's been a, a lot of back and forth that's particularly been highlighted in 2016 uh, with respect to militant groups and um, um, uh, terrorist groups, uh, groups that uh, India accuses Pakistan of harboring and sponsoring. And so you'll be familiar uh, with the fact that since January of this year, um, the um, two most spectacular incidents that have occurred uh, of terrorism uh, uh, in uh, Jammu and Kashmir, uh, the first one in Patankot uh, in January, uh, which was an assault against an Air Force base, and then the most recent one here in uh, Giri, uh, in September against an army base uh, included attacks by what the Indians have accused as being Jaishi Muhammad or Jaishi Muhammad affiliates, uh, which they blame as being infiltrated uh, from uh, Pakistan to uh, conduct the attacks. Now, of course, Pakistan has denied this and asked for the proof, and it's fully uh, fair and important to ask and say that that is still a judgment on the Indian side that's not validated on the Pakistani side, but this sets the environment and sets the context. Uh, and uh, if one tracks what the report is, and, and, and I try to do so uh, within the region about uh, major terrorist attacks in Jammu and Kashmir particularly, uh, the reports from the Indian side, and I report the Indian side here because there's not a lot of overt uh, data or analysis that I can get from the Pakistani side. The Indian side is reporting, uh, as of the end of October, 30 major terrorist strikes within the Jammu and Kashmir region and somewhere in the range of 300 plus. So that's nine months into the year. That's 30 majors, around 300 um, you know, generalized incidents, plus the two big ones that I just talked about. Um, and on a scale, if you look at the reports from the same organizations in the past, you don't see that kind of a spike uh, since 2007. 
since before the Mumbai attack. Uh, so there's something going on here. Uh, also, the Indians are reporting in their parliament, the Ministry of Interior, that they are tracking what they call infiltrations in the Jammu and Kashmir area, which is where they actually, you know, maybe doesn't lead to an attack, but it's a, it's a presumed or recorded infiltration of militants that uh, Indians argue come from Pakistan. Uh, as of the end of September, they were recording and reporting 90 of such infiltrations, which compared to a number of 27 that they were tracking in 2015 and a number of 18 uh, in 2014. So again, something, something significant in terms of the um, infiltration as well as terrorist strike threat profile in Jammu and Kashmir. And, and whether that, that be true or not, and again, I emphasize that the Pakistani side disputes this vehemently and asks for more evidence, um, there's something going on here that is galvanizing the uh, security relationship between the two countries. And it's happening in parallel with Pakistan's efforts in Zarbiazb and then in the different areas that Shuja has highlighted here. So, I mean, some have speculated that perhaps this is kind of like the air in a balloon. Right? That if you have groups that are mixing and intermixing in Pakistan that are militant and terrorist groups, and maybe they're not quite as active or they're under pressure or duress uh, throughout Pakistan, that maybe they're, they're either venting themselves or being encouraged to vent in activities in the Jammu and Kashmir area. So in, in the wider context, the argument that one sees in the popular press in the region, and especially India press, is, hey, it may be all well and good that Pakistan is taking steps internally, but it's, it's, it's not helping our problem with them at all that we have a problem that's great and growing, and there needs to be more attention both from Pakistan to this area and from the wider world in branding these things as critical terrorist issues and strikes. Second, Afghanistan. Um, the statistics in Afghanistan I won't recite in detail. We can save to the question and answer. Um, and again, the statistics there are disputed on both sides. All I can say is that the, uh, the US-led coalition uh, in Afghanistan, now known as Operation Resolute Support, has been reporting um, since 2014 um, a steady increase uh, in militant and militant-related activities, principally targeting uh, Afghan governance, Afghan police and security structures, uh, mostly but not exclusively by the Afghan Taliban and the Haqqani group, um, some of it by the group calling itself uh, ISI, or the Islamic State of Iraq in Afghanistan, or sometimes referred to as ISI Khorasan. Um, we can talk about that in Q&A. I would instead prefer and refer to them as uh, Tariqi Taliban Pakistan splinters, because uh, my research indicates that's a little bit more of who they are as opposed to ISI. But nonetheless, those strikes occurring, and the reported civilian casualties and government casualties in 2014 were the greatest since 2001 in these kinds of incidents. 2015 eclipsed that. And as of the data sets for the end of October, uh, we are on track to see the casualty rates in Afghanistan for both government um, uh, security officials, government employees, and others uh, be uh, yet again greater than 2014 and 2015. So the trajectory there is also negative, and the trajectory relates to, and the reports coming from the coalition-led forces, both from the Afghan government, indicate uh, most, if not all, of these groups um, that are striking and attacking uh, are, are based from or finding support and, and security uh, uh, in uh, cross-border areas uh, in Pakistan, uh, either Balochistan or the frontier areas. And this despite some very strong coordination that's been going on uh, between uh, the commanders of Operation Resolute Support and the commanders and the chief staff of the Pakistan uh, military. Uh, indeed, there has been coordinated support uh, in Zarbi Az uh, with the cross-border uh, locations, but the tensions still remain high in terms of who's tracking who, who's getting targeted, and whether or not that militant threat is really being taken care of on both sides of the border. So another dimension of the region, whereas 
uh, one might have to contrast the successes within Pakistan with Zarbiazm and the other areas that Shuja has reported on, and then just the general feel or the context of what's happening, again, in the, in the Western side or in the Afghanistan side. Finally, though, let's talk about China, because I think China is an important factor here um, in, in the way things have evolved the last couple of years. Um, I, I think China and Pakistan have established a, uh, a, a strong and, uh, and, and, and encouraging relationship in terms of thinking about uh, counter-terrorist activities. Uh, there have been many reports of not only close collaboration and discussions about how to protect the influx of Chinese managers who are involved in the process of, of uh, building this uh, Chinese-Pakistan economic corridor, but I think also in terms of how to improve security countrywide in order to facilitate this growing economic uh, uh, activity set. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a positive dimension there, and I, I see that as a dimension that um, you know, other countries are, are encouraging, to include the United States, as, as something that can, can help and assist. And I note just this last week, uh, Pakistani uh, press reports indicated that China and Pakistan are looking at establishing a, a joint counterterrorism uh, type of uh, framework. It's not clear what that will be, but a joint counterterrorism framework, and they had some exercises in the north of the country just in the last week or so uh, to try to work through those types of things. I think those are positive dimensions and can add to the possibilities that Shuja mentions in his, his report uh, and that Moeed mentions in terms of how to revise the National Action Plan. So I think that's a regional framework that we, we should look at uh, and, and, and think about in terms of the possibilities and the positives that are there, in addition to some of the unfortunate data and the contextual characteristics I talked about with respect to India and Afghanistan. What about U.S. and Pakistan relations? As all of you in this group will know, uh, and despite some of the rhetoric that may indicate to the contrary, the United States and Pakistan remain allies in the global war on terrorism. In fact, our counterterrorism allies. And the United States still budgets and apportions uh, funds to assist Pakistan's military directly in its counterterrorism operations. Now, where is this this? pathway of, uh, of engagement uh, gone over the last several years? Well, I mean, if one looks back to the salad days of 2009, 2010, 2011, where overall U.S. assistance, and I see Alan Kronstadt in the room who tracks this very carefully, and I don't, I don't hold a candle, Alan, to some of the data that you provide, but you know, if you look back in 2009, 2010, 2011, you know, we're talking about overall packages of assistance, security-related, economic-related, and then these reimbursable coalition support funds for counter-terrorist actions. You know, they range pretty much in the, in the 3.2 to 3.25 uh, to uh, five, almost $5 billion range. And this is back in the period when there was the Kerry um, Berman Luger Bill, which had an economic package or stipend of $1.5 billion a year for a five-year period. Not all that delivered, but nonetheless, you know, it was appropriated. Um, and then there was kind of a plateau. And after the, uh, the incident with bin Laden, um, the level of assistance kind of declined through about 2014 uh, in, in the range of the, 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 the mid to low $2 billion worth of assistance a year, but still with fairly robust counterterrorism support or coalition support funds, universally in the uh, you know, low $1 billion range per year. Uh, where have we gone over the last couple of years with the relationship? Well, I'd say we're probably still uh, in a counterterrorism relationship, but it's been one that's been kind of on a steady, steady decline path. Uh, we've not seen, and as a matter of fact, last year, uh, the amount of coalition support funds that were passed uh, was significantly lower than in the past um, uh, previous years. Uh, there was uh, a, a much publicized uh, de decline on the part of the U.S. Congress uh, to provide 300 
or so million dollars to, to fund F-16 uh, purchases, uh, which, which left those purchases unmade, and those were purchases that Pakistan wanted to make, uh, it argued, to assist its counterterrorism fight. And so, I mean, we've seen a decline, although if one looks at the 2017 budget, it's not a total collapse in Pakistan-American military and economic assistance funds. Uh, the projection, though, for 2017 is for the first time since 2007, the total package of assistance will come in somewhere at less than $1 billion. I mean, that's not trivial. I mean, there's lots of U.S. allies in different types of security arrangements that don't see that much assistance every year. So this is still a security arrangement, and it's still an arrangement that's based around counterterrorism support and a counterterrorism dimension, but it is clearly one that's been on the decline, one where the emphasis is maybe shifting a little bit more to trying to assist the civil authority in Pakistan while still maintaining a military-to-military -military relationship, but it's one that bears watching with comment, and with comment I'll come to in a couple of seconds. Next, there's the dimension of what's going on in Afghanistan, which I already talked about, and clearly Clearly, the U.S. commander in Afghanistan, uh, the commander of Operation Resolute Support, uh, currently General Mick Nicholson, uh, just like his predecessor, uh, General John Campbell, both whom I know very well, uh, have, have seen themselves as, as trying, wanting, and, and being willing to work with Pakistan and with Afghanistan to find a way to attrit or attenuate uh, the, uh, Taliban, the Afghan Taliban militant threat, and particularly to do away with what is seen as perhaps the most pernicious and lethal threat, the Haqqani network. Um, there is a perception right now that um, there is not a lot of common ground between the United States Command uh, and the Afghans in Afghanistan right now and the Pakistanis on trying to do away with that Haqqani threat. Uh, that remains an underlying tension in the relationship. We saw that tension come to the surface um, in May uh, when there was a uh, strike against the head of the Afghan Taliban, a uh, cross-border strike, uh, a strike that Pakistan protested as violating sovereignty against Mullah Baradar. Uh, and uh, we, we know that uh, the signals from the U.S. command in Afghanistan has been um, that uh, if and, uh, and uh, potentially when posed with similar information about a leader of the Afghan Taliban or a significant leader of the Qani network, that the U.S. reserves the right to take such action again. Right? So that's, that, that's not a... Uh, uh, a, an interaction that's um, um, it, uh, one that would, would normally find in, in close allies in a, in a fight like a counterterrorism fight, but it nonetheless is what is extant right now as the concerns over the Haqqani network and the concerns over the leadership of the, the Afghan Taliban and their ability to transit to and from Pakistan remain extant within Afghanistan. And I think that just contributes to um, the, 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 the decline, the, the, the ramp of decline of the relationship uh, between the two countries. Finally then, what about the new administration? Well. Um, I, I think we all get to hold on to our hats a little bit here. Uh, I think um, when one looks at some of the people that Mr. Trump has had in his um, um, advisory group here during the campaign uh, with military and intelligence backgrounds, uh, you see a bit of a, a mixed bag. You see individuals from the intelligence side, like uh, uh, Ron Burgess, who worked for years with Pakistani ISI in the, in the counterterrorism arena. And you also see General Mike Flynn, uh, retired as well, who worked with Pakistanis uh, in that fashion. Um, and and uh, you know, whereas Burgess is not quite as much on the record as how he sees the relationship going forward, I think General Flynn, in his book, co-written by Michael Ledeen, uh, has been a little more um, assertive in indicating that uh, uh, one should demand more from the Pakistanis in terms of action against the 
Haqqani group and in terms of this more universal uh, move against terrorist groups that Moeed you know, talked about that was there. Uh, but we still don't know where these persona will fit into a new administration. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, there will clearly be a negotiation period as they settle into position, whatever those positions might be uh, in the national security process, and that we should expect perhaps that um, uh, whereas uh, the current trajectory uh, has been one that's been kind of a, a, a gradual uh, but, but, but mutually engaged decline, that uh, we, should, we should look for and hope that the signals will be that, that that kind of a decline either remains on the ramp that it's on right now, which is kind of a slow decline, more transactional in the relationship, continuing with uh, socioeconomic assistance, continuing with military assistance, conditioned on certain activities in the counterterrorism arena, and, and one should cross our fingers and hope that the initial engagements uh, do not go badly and do not signal a move in a more precipitous direction towards uh, a more rapid withdrawal of uh, US military or economic support. I, for one, would hope that we would not move in that direction, for I think the, uh, the counterterrorism alliance is, is of value. And I think the way forward for a more positive um, set of engagements uh, to, uh, to improve the overall regional climate, which I described right now as being um, you know, ever more dangerous, uh, would be in the interest of all parties here, the US, Pakistan, China, uh, and India. And so it's with, with that kind of a hope, but with a, a very um, uh, cautious uh, um, observation uh, that I look forward to uh, the next phase in the uh, US-Pakistan uh, military to military and security relationship. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Um, I just want to start off from where you left, which is, um, if I understand correctly, you would prefer a steady decline in the relationship? What or I, that's your best case what scenario. What I'd say is that when one looks at kind of where we are right now, Barat, and where, where one might go, yeah. I'd say the, the trajectory that we've been on right now, which has been a, 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 a measured uh, but nonetheless reciprocal yep. dynamic uh, that has led to a decline in the amount of physical support, that that be the best that we can hope for and mm -hmm. that we continue to hope for that uh, as, as we go forward and not so, something more precipitous. Correct. And could you just tease out some of the implications? The question is to all of you. If there is a steady, steady decline, what are the implications? And if I go to your worst case scenario, which is an abrupt decline in the relationship, what would be the implications? For? U.S.-Pakistan relations, the neighborhood writ large. And where, where does this lead us? Do you know where I'm getting at? Yes, well, I mean, I'm, fair, I'm fair saying question. Your, your nightmare question. You're, well, you're, you're, you're taking, yeah, you're taking it clearly in the, in the direction of speculation. I just want to you know, highlight that, that it is my uh, earnest hope uh, that um, as this relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan is looked at carefully, um, the, the positives and the import of it uh, will, be, will be seen as uh, um, uh, worth working at moving forward. Um, of course, the worst case scenario is one looks at some of the statements that Mr. Trump made during the campaign. I mean, he was pretty open in a couple of uh, speeches in saying that, uh, you know, uh, as far as uh, he and some of his people were concerned, that uh, Pakistan should become much more of uh, something that India should have to deal with and that the United States shouldn't have to, to, to deal with, uh, with that directly. Uh, now, I don't, I don't, I mean, that's campaign rhetoric. I mean, the implications of that and the, and, and, and the dangers of that, I think all of us in this room are very uh, familiar with and, and wary of. 
Um, but I mean, that, that could be you know, the worst case scenario. So I mean, I guess one has to put themselves in a position. If that becomes the worst case scenario, and the United States for some reason decides to you know, not continue engagement with Pakistan in a military to military relations uh, fashion, um, or, or in a uh, more civil social fashion, I mean, uh, would it be that there would be just this dramatic shift to uh, allowing India to call the shots. I mean, I don't, I don't know how foreign policy advisory teams, you know, would kind of get to that spot uh, if they look soberly at our interest there. And when I say our interest, I mean United States interest, which not only include trying to inhibit a return of global um, counter of uh, global terrorist type organizations, uh, either to Afghanistan or to any part of you know Pakistan or the region, which include trying to inhibit any kind of a major power war between two nuclear powers uh, that that could become you know, very devastating to the region and, and have international economic and global climate uh, implications if it should get to that point. Um, and, and, and also, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, continue to pursue a, a policy of uh, trying to not have uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons. So I mean, I think all those things augur for the United States, one, staying engaged with Pakistan, maybe at a reduced level of economic assistance, but nonetheless staying engaged, and the U.S. staying engaged in Afghanistan, where you still have a lot of territory that the Afghans can't manage themselves, where we've seen that if a vacuum is created, uh, Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda-like groups will establish locations. They did in late 2014, and they show the propensity to do it again. So the United States should and could stay, remain, and engage there. So I think, you know, when one looks at the worst case, I mean, yeah, you can speculate the worst case, the U.S. backs all the way out, doesn't get involved. But when you look at the risks and the dangers from wider perspectives, I, I think it's, it's uh, entirely premature uh, to speculate that uh, a group of advisors who would look carefully at the region would come to a conclusion to just back out or to follow through on campaign rhetoric. I want to... Um come back to you on a couple of points there, but before that, I want to invite yeah, both of you I, to, Ashuja. Uh, I mean, go ahead. So, yeah. I would say a couple of things. First, I actually don't see how you can keep the current, be on the current path um, with the US-Pakistan relationship. I think something will change. Now, how it changes, how abruptly it changes, I don't know. And the reason I mention that is that if you have conversations about Pakistan, think about how it's going to be internalized. I think there are two issues that will come up, basically. One is Afghanistan, and you just mentioned the underlying tension. Uh, if that is true, and if Afghanistan, if, if the US and Pakistan have to think slightly differently on Afghanistan than the current sort of collision course, then either Pakistan will change policy to US's liking, or the US will stop asking uh, Pakistan to do something about the Haqqani network. Neither of those, I think, are likely at this point, given the regional framework that we are in. Um, in fact, I would argue, um, I would say the same for Afghanistan, but Pakistan, where, where I can speak with uh, some authority, I've never seen the narrative on Afghanistan so caustic as I saw this time in the summer. I mean, the lines are drawn. It was always, this tension was always there, but it was always hedged. It was always, yeah, we can work it out, etc. I think the lines are very clearly drawn, and the view is, well, if we're going to be blamed for everything, then so be it. We're also going to play hardball. And I think it's, it's a similar view on the Afghan side. So I don't think that changes. On India, I think Pakistan still is looking for a U.S. that comes in and helps on the major issues as they see them. If that's true, either the US will go and do that, which I see no possibility of, at least appetite in Washington, or uh, Pakistan will feel that the US is leaning towards India and is left out and is not neutral anymore, etc. So I actually don't see how on either one of these, US and Pakistan can have a real conversation without um, 
getting to a worse point than, than there is. The only other thing I'll say is there's one difference between now and the 90s when the split happened in the past, which is that I, I find a sort of conversation about China in Pakistan that hasn't existed before, which is seen rightly or wrongly, but I, I think, you know, fairly unfortunately, as a ready alternative rather than a complement to the U.S. relationship. And so I think it only makes it more likely that, that the conversation would go in a way where Pakistan and the U.S. will keep doing things which will push them apart, even if they don't want to go apart. I completely agree with you that I, I think it shouldn't go that way. It's going to be a lose-lose situation for both sides. Um, and the only thing I keep reminding people is that it's all well to say, uh, you know, why, why should this relationship continue on both sides? I hear this on both sides now. Uh, the only thing I remind is go back to the 90s and see the implications of that cutoff for both sides and it wasn't happy. Uh, and where we ended up is not where we want to go again. Uh, and the region is as troubled as it was at that time. So uh, rationally speaking, I, I completely agree with you. I just find that the specific conversations on Afghanistan and India, which are going to be the one and two priorities, um, I just don't see how they can come together given the prevailing sentiment right now. Sure, um, I think we probably will need, and you may want to think about this, Bharat, a separate session on the U.S. and South Asia in light of the election results. I think that that is warranted because uh, we need to unpack a lot of this. Uh, so I'll just say a few quick things uh, and then hopefully we can get back to the internal situation in Pakistan. Um, the U.S. does not read history very well. And so it is quite possible that uh, the new administration will forget what happened in the 1990s and will take some precipitate action. Um, there will be the possibility of branding Pakistan as a terrorist sponsoring state or isolating Pakistan or as, as uh, Tom was saying, uh, building up the idea that we make Pakistan the responsibility of a regional hegemon like India. Um, if that happens, you're really playing to the worst fears of Pakistanis. And you're going to push Pakistan in a direction which is not going to be one which will help create a stable region um, because uh, the pressures will be on Pakistan from outside and will strengthen those fears and the paranoia that there is some conspiracy behind all these moves. So I, th I think that's something to be aware of. The other thing is, if I was advising Pakistan, my advice would be very simple. It, it, is, it is in Pakistan's own interest to act against the landscape which has fostered and developed militancy and terrorism within the country. How that affects its relationships with neighbors then becomes a secondary fallout. And if it resolves that landscape, and that is with every passing year becoming a much more difficult endeavor, because the number of people that are under arms in Pakistani society now uh, is increasing every year. And, and not just regular arms, heavy arms. Um, it's going to be a major challenge for the security uh, authorities, whether it's the civil or the military, to tackle. But how do you change that landscape? And I think that is, that is really where the educational system needs to be changed. Uh, the political relationships, the alliances that have been made by the political parties in their own regions, 
the sectarian violence. Uh, if Pakistan addresses that, I think it'll be in a much stronger position to tackle the regional issues as well as the global Absolutely. pressures, because that is in Pakistan's own interest. So, so that would be my advice. Now, in terms of the United States, my advice would be don't try the isolation approach, and for God's sake, don't pack up and fold your tent in the middle of the night and leave again, which you did before. Because there are any number of voices here which see that as the easy option. You know, we'll just leave and things will be okay. And they'll leave Afghanistan the same way that they left Pakistan. And then we, we know what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, it may be premature. We don't know what the Trump administration will produce by way of leadership and ideas for the region. But my advice to the Trump administration would be to remain engaged and to actually now do something that President Obama failed to do, which was to have a regional policy for South Asia. And for God's sake, let's bury the AFPAC uh, moniker and, and the, the whole panoply of actions that accompany the sparing of relationships uh, and take, take a, a regional approach. And let the regional approach include not just India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but also Iran which is increasingly a player uh, in this region. And uh, look at the economic relationships, which would benefit the region and also the United States and China uh, and others uh, if, if you could foster the development of those relationships. Uh, th this is taking a more positive view of what's possible. But you know, um, that's unfortunately uh, the way I am. I look at the glasses half full. And I see an opportunity. Uh, among all the challenges that the new Trump administration will face, I see an opportunity for them to do good in a part of the world which has about 1.7 billion people and a potential market, uh, not just for the countries in the region, but for the United States also. So rather than divide them. Shuja, I want to add to your optimism, and I want to go back to Tom's point. You know, you talked about the nuclear tensions between two countries and said, this could precipitate into a war, but I would try, try to take the more optimistic case. In the last, these are relatively two nuclear, new nuclear weapons powers, and despite the worst case assumptions by many of us in the Beltway out here, the South Asians have proved a little more responsible and restrained themselves in engaging in a full-scale conflict. You've done a lot of work on it. And I'd also point out to this, um, an agreement that's in the Hague Code of Conduct where each party notifies the other in uh, 72 hours in advance of a ballistic missile test. The United States and Russia do not do it, but India and Pakistan do it. That agreement, despite all tensions, have, has successfully worked between these two, these two nuclear weapons powers. So in that sense, there is a case of optimism out here. And the third point is also China. I think when I look at the rest of Asia Pacific, you know, uh, most of the countries around there um, are economically today aligned with China and security, in terms of security alignment, they have hedged their bets on the United States. I don't know how that's going to change in the new administration, but leading unto, until January 20th, 2017. But I think an oversimplification in Pakistan's case today, I think in economic and security terms, they're hedging their bets towards China. Yeah. Correct? And that's I true. think, you know, and, and why not? If China can play that role in stabilizing that part of Pakistan, why not? We should welcome that opportunity. Bill should welcome that. We should welcome that. Um, uh, but in other case, I just wanted to go back to the National Action Plan, which both of you referred. 
and what I really what I discern out there is um, it lacks clarity, and that's to a large extent a lack of capacity amongst the officials who are drafting that plan. Correct. I don't think. You, I think it was just the circumstances and the the timeline to timeline, come up with something. Yeah, correct. Yeah. But then you know what are your what are your alternatives? Uh, how would you, if you were in that position, tasked with mm -hmm. doing something to respond to a situation like that? What would you do? In short, how would you manage the expectations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you cannot win, but how do you? And I'll ask, uh, and I'll also leave you with one question, which is, in your report, you write, the biggest challenge facing the country other than terrorism is the sluggish economy. And I think one of the issues that you are very passionate about when you were at the council, coupled to this, the drop in oil prices in Saudi Arabia and the return of migrant workers. Uh, you know which issue I'm getting yes. to. And in and this, the defense spending went up 11% in the 2016-2017 budget compared with the previous year. So what can be done to have a budget that reflects the values of a country and its society? So who well, wants to let jump? Let me start with the last one first. I think we, we had a very useful recent discussion at Stimson about defense spending. And I think one needs to be quite clear. Um, India and Pakistan have this paired relationship on defense spending. But what makes Pakistan's defense spending go up considerably, and particularly in the recent years, is really not India. It has been the internal security situation. Pakistan's military expenditures have risen tremendously because you're maintaining dual uh, establishments for the formations that have been moved from the Indian border to the west of the country. There are roughly about 200,000 soldiers there now. And uh, when you do that, it really pushes up your costs. The other thing which affects both India and Pakistan, and, and they mirror each other's increase, and India can obviously afford it much more than Pakistan, but the increases have been because of personnel costs and pensions. Uh, these, are go these are going to continue to increase because people are living longer. So I think that part uh, one, ca one can easily deal with. But to go back to your, your basic question, which I think both Mohit and I, uh, you posed to both of us, uh, the, uh, there is a question of civil cap civilian capacity. Uh, and that is one which doesn't affect just this part of of governance, it is overall governance, which is that institution building has not been something that civilian governments have concentrated on. And so they went into the, the NAP as a, uh, a follow-up to what was the national internal security policy, um, something that was started and then kind of let adrift and then taken ownership by the interior minister, but nobody else signed on to it. No resources were allocated. There was no coordination with the provinces where the real action will take place. And since the provinces are ruled by other parties, uh, that coordination was, was very difficult. Uh, there was no coordination with the military either because the military was much better organized. And they produced a paper for the national security policy, but that paper was never featured in the final results that, that emerged on the NISP. So there's this lack of coordination. And I make another point in my, my study, which is that parliament needs to be much more involved because through parliament, the people of Pakistan get involved. Parliament should be the eyes and ears of the people of Pakistan. If they're going to earn their keep instead of asking for additional parliamentary lodges and, and blue passports so they can travel without visas to all, all over the world with them and their families, 
They should be concentrating on solving these kinds of problems, uh, addressing the issues and seeing how they can be a force multiplier for the military and for the civilians that are fighting militancy and terrorism. I get passionate about it, but because they've been doing the opposite. They've been looking the other way while uh, all kinds of things have been done which have hurt the effort. Uh, they, for instance, you know, acquisition of technology which doesn't work in both India and Pakistan. The, the bogus uh, antenna wands that are supposed to, to, to detect explosives, uh, they don't work. They had never worked, they didn't work in Iraq. Uh, both India and Pakistan imported those and they're still using them. Uh, nobody in parliament is, is uh, exercising, uh, you know, they talk about their supremacy and they talk about their responsibilities, but they don't exercise them. So I hold them responsible too. I have a slightly different take, and I'll say two things and be blunt. Uh, candor is a weakness. Uh, but one is I think it's less to do with bringing uh, the military in or the civilians in. I think the disconnect is deeper, and it, it goes much beyond just the security sector. And that keeps pulling responsible people in responsible positions back when it comes to taking obvious decisions. For instance, for three and a half years now, everybody in Pakistan, at least everybody I sort of talk to, has been asking why Pakistan doesn't have a foreign minister. And why does it have a part-time defense minister? When there are everybody, uh, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry looking for a job. And the reason is there is a fundamental disconnect. There is a worry about certain things in certain minds which doesn't allow it to go there. And that spills over into the security space as well. And unless the civil and military can come on the same page on this issue, you'll always have suboptimal results. In terms of what to do, I, I spoke, when I spoke, I gave you a very clear sense of there are seven or eight out of the 20 which are actually national action plan elements. Those need to be concentrated on. You need to have clear strategies attached to them. You need to know how the provinces in the center will come together. And the rest of the 12, quite frankly, you just need to manage expectations. Some of them are never going to happen for another three decades. Some of them don't make sense to be in the plan. So reform of FATA or reform of governance in Balochistan has to happen, but that's got nothing to do with, with this. Uh, Afghan refugees, to me, is, is a separate issue, linked but separate. Um, so I think you need to very clearly say, here are the seven things we want to work on. Here is how we're going to work on them. And you can measure and judge us based on this. And of course, the military operations at large need to, be brought, need to be brought into the National Action Plan. I mean, that makes, I don't understand how you can leave out the most important uh, part of it. If I, say one, if I may say one more word, the National Action Plan's success and Pakistan's stability None of us should pretend, and that's why I think you set up the panel rightly, that it can come about without looking at the regional environment. It plays directly into what happens in Pakistan and what Pakistan does outward. And there, just to make a point on the US, I, I know my colleagues are much more experienced and, and optimistic, but I'm not. And so let me just say very bluntly, why not? On Afghanistan, the US issue is priority to resolve Afghanistan. And the Haqqani network is what the US thinks has to be resolved, has to be dealt with to make that happen. Right or wrong, I'm not talking about. If that's true, Pakistan is either going to do something about it or not going to do something about it. And that's a clash. I don't see Pakistan doing what the US is asking. The Pakistanis feel that's going to be a net negative for them. But the US wants it done for Afghanistan. I don't see a resolution to that. On India, the US view and the appetite in this town is terrorism is the problem, resolve the terrorism issue. In Pakistan, the view is terrorism is a function of unresolved disputes like Kashmir. 
So help us resolve that and terrorism will go away. There's no matching of that. And if that's true, this is a collision course. And they can soften the blow, they can have soft landings or whatever. But these are diametrically opposed positions because both sides are seeing their interests rationally, both are acting in their own interest and it doesn't come together. Simple as that. So I think we need to, we need to be very blunt about this fact. Go ahead. Thank you so you much. Want, uh, you want the mic? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm Akbar Khwaja. First, a note of thanks to the panel for a great discussion. Uh, one comment and one question. Comment to me, the observations about 20 points in the National Action Plan. Uh, I'm sure there's a classified version of the real plan, and what you have seen is just a bullet point. Uh, uh, and the timeline giving to the terrorists may be not a good idea. As Mr. Trump, during the campaign, said, going to Mosul with a timeline, announcing two weeks in advance was not a good idea. Question to you, Tom. Um, Mr. Trump, in the campaign, said if he would have been the president, there would have not been ISIS. Uh, there would have been a different solution. You think similar situation in Afghanistan uh, what do you expect from Mr. Trump's uh, strategic move to tackle with Haqqani's network, which was original President Reagan's idea? Thank you. Right, well, certainly ask my, my colleagues in here, but let me, let me offer you the, the, the observation uh, as follows. I mean, first, um, let, me, let me qualify myself as, as a realist, not an optimist when it comes to Pakistan items. And part of that realism is the fact when one looks objectively at the history, uh, when the U.S. and Pakistan have divorced in the past, the results for the U.S. have been net negative within five, six years afterwards. We've had to come back with more. We've had to come back with more cost, more issue, more problem. Uh, Pakistan has suffered too, though. And so, I mean, it, both sides tend to lose when there's too much of an abrupt break, which is why when I look at the transition period here, I say, yes, we have some cause for concern about the future of the relationship when we look at Mr. Trump's campaign statements and some of the things that some of the people advising him have said on record and written in books. But when one looks um, at this relationship, as I'm sure this team is doing right now and will continue to do in classified briefings and other things, I'm reasonably confident that, that we'll see a couple of things. First, that there are problems with the relationship. The Akhani Network, the Afghan Taliban, some of the other you know, wider terrorist groups and issues. But there's also a framework that we haven't talked about a lot here, which is still, as you alluded to, this wider global war on terror framework. And there, Al-Qaeda is part of the constellation. ISIS is part of the constellation. Many of the groups that circulate in South Asia are part of the constellation. And the United States has an overriding interest, and I think Mr. Trump's people have an overriding interest, they've said, in trying to make sure that there is no uh, repository or no safe haven for terrorist groups that can plot and plan global terrorist strikes and activities, particularly against the U.S. homeland, but also against our allies and our interests overseas. To me, when one looks at this situation right now in Afghanistan Pakistan, there is still grave risk there. And the grave risk gets graver if the United States disengages. If anything, I just say editorially that ISI Khorasan probably gave President Ghani and the United States 
the necessary excuse to stay on when this country was kind of on the way to zero in, in Afghanistan. No, not absolute zero, but you know, on the way down to a normal relationship because we were concerned about precisely that, not knowing how far ISI's reach would go, um, not knowing whether or not they could get established in Afghanistan. I mean, in many ways, this is why in 15 and then in 16, President Obama took a series of three announcements to slow down and then arrest the drawdown of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, right? I mean, this was the president and Congress being interested in making sure ISI I did not get established, and then after some incidents in the fall of 2014 and making sure that Al-Qaeda did not resurrect safe haven in the southern part of Afghanistan. So I think there is still a common interest there. To the extent that Pakistan's intelligence services can play positively and help the United States inhibit that, I think there still is potential there. But I'm a realist, okay? We got to do better. There got to be discussions about the Haqqani network because, you know, while Mr. Trump may, you know, offer people six, eight months to figure out how to, you know, do better, I think after that six to eight months, we could see another rapid decline if there's not something better with respect to the Haqqanis because the Haqqanis have been accused of being involved in some pretty hideous attacks against not only Indian interests in Afghanistan, but also Afghanistan security forces that the United States is paying a lot of money and a lot of its own personal net worth in trying to uh, invest in and grow out. So I think I see that there's a realistic path, this whole issue about the wider South Asia interest and the United States interest in global counterterrorism not reestablishing a base there, I think that's still a framework for positive interaction. And I, I feel that once the people around Mr. Trump get the full briefings in this area, in this accord, there will still be that potential uh, commonality for discussion. And therein the Chinese can play, and therein maybe even the Russians can play, if Mr. Trump wants to play with the Russians some more. I mean, you know, how that would work out or not. Okay, so I'm talking about realist interest here. I'm not talking about, you know, just idealist, we should, should, should. I think there's some realist interest here. But I'm also not naive. This is not going to be easy these next several months. This is going to be hard because a lot of hard things are going to get called on the table and a lot of questions are going to be asked. But again, I go back to the point. If one reads history and understands it correctly, the only worse thing than being engaged with Pakistan in a global war against terrorism would be U.S. not engaged with Pakistan in a global war on terrorism. I think that is a truism that will still come through right now. So it's far too early for a formal divorce. I just want to take Alan's question, then I want you all to respond. Yeah. Hi, thank you, Alan Kronstadt, Congressional Research Service. Uh, thank you all for this uh, event. I um, something occurred to me. Something you said, Moeed, um, about the National Action Plan uh, brought to mind some possibly institutional or structural issues in Pakistan, and that was when you said that um, you know the need to reduce religious per persecution or end religious persecution, something everyone can agree on. I actually don't think that's the case in Pakistan. I mean, I think that's arguably not the case. And I think when you have laws such as the so-called anti-omity laws or the blasphemy laws, I mean, I think you have legal institutional setting in Pakistan that, um, you know, by the accounts of human rights activists are state-sanctioned intolerance. So uh, for the panel, for you, Moeed, and anyone in the panel, uh, to what extent is, is the uh, kind of legal institutional setting in Pakistan a variable uh, in efforts to, to uh, yeah. undertake this plan? Thank you. I think that's a fair question. Let me, let me just come to that, just one comment on, on your point. So I've heard this a lot, actually, in Pakistan. Uh, everybody says, but, you know, there is something else. If there is something else, it's not good. Let's just put it that way, because the, what we are seeing right now is incoherence. And you know, somebody who's done nine months of study, and I spent the whole summer doing this, if none of us can at least find out whether there is or not, there is a problem. The other thing is, 
expectations are managed with public information, not with classified documents. And my whole argument is that NAP, the government, the state sets itself up for failure if the expectations are too high and the delivery is not. So if the state cannot challenge the notion that every time a major attack happens, NAP has failed, there is a problem. And to do that, you have to have information out in terms of what are the benchmarks against which you want to be measured yourself. So my argument is that it's in the state's interest to actually create those strategies. Don't give details of strategies, of course, but say, here are certain things you will see over the next year or two years. That's, I think, the important part beyond just the, the taglines. Um, and let me also say with fair amount of confidence that there are plans that go under these points. And I'm glad that they've not been shared. Uh, because if there were, I would be more critical. So I think we need real plans, and there are new committees now that are there. So I think the government recognizes this. People are working on this. It's not easy, right? When you put out a point that says resolve or reform the criminal justice system, what does that mean? I mean, countries would take hundreds of years to do that, right? So that's why it has to be specific, and expectations have to be managed. Alan, to your point, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think the institutional legal environment in some cases is diametrically opposed to what is trying to be achieved in the National Action Plan. I don't see much possibility of that framework being replaced because it's politically charged. There are all sorts of sensitivities around that. So the question, how do you work around that, right? So what the state has to do is tell us or tell people, um, despite this framework, here is how we are going to take care of the religious persecution issue. And if they reach a point where it's a dead end because of those, then there's a stronger case to make that you've got to replace them, change them, or do whatever. But I think if you look at their achievements as they put it, they say, well, we've taken away 1,500 books, which is great. I mean, I, I think those numbers are quite, quite good. But how does that add up? We just don't know because all we are going, is, uh, going by is one line. So I think my push is really that the government is setting itself up for a big problem by not clarifying what these 20 points mean. So I have three questions. And why don't you go first? I have a comment. Uh, and a question. Shuja, I think. Uh, you have said that education expenditure was 74 billion to 82, and uh, health from 11 billion to 21. You have just taken the federal budget. The education budget for whole Pakistan is 810 billion, and 2.7% of GDP is on education, and 2.9% on defense. And if you combine education and health, it's 3.7% of GDP as far as social sector is concerned. So I just wanted you to take that into account. Muid, I think you are right that there is a capacity constraint. But at the same time, you're arguing that in a constrained atmosphere, you must have multiple fronts opened up and have simultaneous actions taken against several militant groups. Four years ago, people were saying, oh, Sawat is just 60 miles away from Islamabad, and Islamabad is under danger. Then people said, all the people who are Chechens or Arabs, they're all doing free work in constructing their infrastructure, safe haven in North Waziristan. That's out. Mm -hmm. Then we came to Karachi and said that Karachi is the second Taliban home. Mm -hmm. That has been cleaned up. 
Then people were saying the, all the sectarian riots are taking place because of Lashkar Jangvi, and you saw the leadership of Lashkar Jangvi being. Mm -hmm. Now, the least damage to Pakistan's internal security is being done by the groups which are being demanded by our neighbors. And I okay. said they should be. Sure. But when you have a capacity constraint, Mm -hmm. Won't you go into a more orderly and sequential manner yeah. rather than you do not extend yourself too far? And that is a trap for yeah. failure. I, I'll just take okay. two more Sorry. questions. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, Rachel Karaoke from USAID. Um, you've mentioned the military, you've mentioned the civilian government. I'm curious if you could describe the role of civil society in the implementation of the National Action Plan, and if you think that role should adjust, and if so, how? And, uh, yeah. Yes, I am uh, Akram, and a fellow here in Atlas Core. My question to Mr. Tom. You shared about uh, uh, two attacks in India and uh, Pakistan involvements in India like so what's what are your views about which Pakistan used to say that India used to attack different groups and draw is involved in Pakistan like two major attacks in this month in Balochistan area more than 100 lives so what what are your comments for that? Um. I'll say two or three things. First of all, I don't think I said Pakistan should or should not. What I pointed to is that there is a clear divergence of view between the Pakistani view on this and the world's view. Which is right, the jury is, jury is out. Uh, Pakistan's view is the quarantine approach, as you've just pointed out. The world's view is no, it won't work, you have to go after all of them. Which one is right? You know, we'll wait and see. But, but I was pointing to the disconnect rather than saying which one works because I think nobody can factually say it's a counterfactual in some ways. The, the point here, though, is that, yes, a lot of improvement has taken place. But I'll go back to my blunt comment before. That improvement is not the world's number one priority. Should it be, should it not be, is a separate debate. I'm not getting into that. And Pakistan's number one priority is what Pakistan is doing, as you were explaining. So the groups that are not hurting Pakistan internally are second order. For the world, they happen to be first order because the perception or the reality or whatever you want to call it is that they're operating elsewhere, which matters to the world. That's why the disconnect. And in a classic realist framework, I think it's very Machiavellian on both sides to argue this, if you were to take facts on face value. I don't think the issue here is which one is right, which one is more moral, which one is more ethical. Uh, I think you have to wipe out all terrorism, period. It's going to hurt everybody at the end of the day. But the strategy, I, my point again and again is I don't think the US and Pakistan can agree on this anymore because the positions are hard and the positions are diametrically opposed. Well, if, I'm talking of the capacity constraint that you pointed out. Correct. What's a major issue? Correct. So if you have a constrained environment, what do you do first and what do you do next? Well, I that guess the question I'm asking. What you're saying is absolutely yeah, right. I, I, I think what the, what the world is saying is that the capacity argument aside, I'm just giving you an analogy, this is a cancer that has spread. So you cannot quarantine cancer. And thus, whether you have the capacity or not, your best chance is still to go after the entire problem. And I think the view, the response is no. Actually, this is very contained cancer. I can quarantine it. I can take it one at a time, and I'll succeed. And that debate continues. Uh, 
Ishwas, I'm going to have to look at the sources of your information on the the education budget uh, because report, which is done the by, by Wilson Center. Yeah, I can give you that certainly. Uh, but the question is: Is the problem solved? Uh, the problem is uh, yeah. The problem is not solved because it's the quality of the education sector that that needs to be addressed. And in terms of militancy and terrorism, particularly, it's the nature of what is being taught in those schools, and particularly at the provincial level, uh, whether they have signed on to uh, what was at one point presented as a new education policy during President Musharraf's period. That never happened either. So uh, I'm sure we'd be happy to look at the numbers and, uh, and, and put it in proper perspective. Uh, on the question of civil society, um, th there was never any plan in the National Action Plan to involve civil society uh, in this discussion. Uh, there was never any overt mechanism to bring Parliament into this, to debate it in a, in a manner where you would have uh, the population's views uh, featured in whatever emerged. And, uh, I think what is happening now is a kind of retrofitting of that. Uh, Moeed has, has spent time there, and he, he's obviously privy to a lot more recent information. Uh, the National Security Advisor has been tasked with reshaping it. Uh, but even then, I foresee problems, because the Minister of Interior uh, holds himself responsible for this activity and has always presented it as something that belongs to him, everybody else disagrees. And so the question is, within the government, there is no single view on it. And I don't know what the National Security Advisor will be able to do, because he won't have the resources. Uh, and neither has there been any talk of giving him additional resources or responsibilities in, in, this, uh, um, in the review and implementation of an improved national action plan. So, uh, all this is up in the air, and what I mentioned at the end of my, my opening remarks remains still a worry for me, which is we are going to be in election mode now. And a lot of these tough decisions may be put under the rug, they, they or will be postponed, whereas the bad guys are going to continue to be active, and uh, the region is going to continue to change and evolve, uh, and international dynamics will change and evolve. So I think it's in Pakistan's selfish interest to take a good hard look at it and try and get some traction on this for its own sake and not worry too much about what the Americans are saying or what the Indians are saying or what President Ghani is saying, uh, because all that will follow from what happens inside Pakistan. They now do have working groups, though, just, just to, you know, uh, they have working groups set up under some of these points where a lot of the... Uh, journalists, experts, etc., have been brought in to be part of those working groups and advice. How much of that is actually taken up, and is there a mechanism? We'll see. But that's how I think they are justifying sort of bringing these people in. And also, they would tell you that the national internal security policy that predated NAP and then kind of disappeared had a major consultation around the country with various groups. And so, they, I think the argument would be we've taken that on board already and now these working groups. But again, I think the point is valid, which is... Let me add that, that the head of NACTA actually had 22 points, which he shared with me, of all the activities involving yeah. civil society groups, yeah. international experts, yeah. everyone, to try and, and get everyone involved yeah. 
in crafting a better counterterrorism approach um, and just was promised the money. It was announced and then it was not delivered. So he's basically now trying to operate on a shoestring. That's the reality. And Brad, I know we're at sort of time, but sir, to your question, um, which is a legitimate one, um, there indeed have been strikes within Pakistan uh, over the last year, uh, to include the couple that you mentioned in Balochistan against government targets. Now, my read of the information about those, though, has included the following. It has been attacks that have been claimed by uh, ISI Khorasan, or the group I like to refer to as the refugees from Tariki Taliban, Pakistan, who are still sworn against the state of uh, uh, Pakistan and are still launching strikes uh, in that uh, capacity as uh, anti-state or anti-Pakistan um, uh, anti, uh, state strikes. Uh, I mention that because if you look at the track record of the last year and a half of U.S. and Afghanistan forces in Afghanistan, you will see that there have been um, dozens of major strikes against the leadership of that very same group, ISI Khorasan, or the remnants of Tariki Taliban Pakistan. And we now have authorities, the U.S. government does, in conjunction with Afghanistan. And I would surmise, in collaboration with Pakistani intelligence services, to identify and eliminate those individuals uh, formerly known as Tariki Taliban Pakistan, now perhaps claiming to be uh, uh, Islamic State of Khorasan, uh, because the United States recognizes that this group not only poses a threat to them, but also to the state of Pakistan, uh, given their sworn enmity and animus. Now you raise the issue of India. I mean, clearly, okay, Pakistan has, has leveled charges and accusations in the last year and has even identified an individual or two um, that they've identified as Indian intelligence services operating in and around Balochistan, uh, with the implication that there may be some nefarious activity involved there in trying to stoke unrest. Uh, I think in the in a realist perspective, um, uh, that I would be surprised if there were not intelligence services from Pakistan operating in India or India operating in Pakistan. I raise the issue, though, of who has claimed responsibility for the two strikes that you mentioned because of the fact it is these groups that have been um, identified in Afghanistan and have also uh, been targets of Afghanistan and the United States uh, working presumably in conjunction with the interests of Pakistan. So this is a this is a regional issue. It's a regional challenge. Uh, and one can draw one's own conclusions. I tend to draw the conclusions that the strikes you referred to uh, are probably coming from groups that are very much anti the Islamic State, correction, that are very much uh, anti the Pakistani state uh, and are still able to operate uh, in and around uh, the uh, fuzzy border areas of Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, with the kinds of support that they had as Tariki Taliban Pakistan, uh, but with the knowledge that Afghanistan uh, and the United States have struck against leaders of these claimed groups in Afghanistan. Thank you. No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.